I'm going to ask a rhetorical question for which I do not need an answer. <laughs> do you ever get tired of talking about your kids? <laughs> you ever get tired of talking about your grandkids? Some people, even when they've told you about their and and by the way, we all know that yours are the greatest kids in the world. We got it. And we all know that your grandkids are the cutest and the sweetest in the world. We got it. But you're going to keep talking about them, aren't you? Because you just can't help it. And every time you get a new school picture and every time they do something new or something you want to brag about, I mean, you, you got to tell somebody. You post it on Facebook. You send a twit pic out about it. And I mean, you, you, you got all of that. Now, here's the context that I want you to think of that in. God never gets tired of talking about his son. And we should never get tired of the story of the birth of his son. It's very easy for us, especially if you've been raised in a church, especially when you've been around God's people a long time, it's very easy for us to kind of check the box and turn the lights off because we already know what's going to be said. But just as much as you are interested in your children and in your grandchildren, God is far more interested in you remembering the birth of his son. Because without the birth of his son, you would not have life. You would not have eternal life. You wouldn't have hope. You would not have forgiveness of sin. It is because of his son that we have life. So the biggest picture, the greatest gift, the biggest story is not us. It's his son. I tell people jokingly sometimes because my birthday is Christmas Day that everybody gets to take my birthday off. Y'all don't all thank me right now. In fact, I said one time it was me and another famous guy. And just kind of went over people's heads. <laughs> and yet, do you realize that there are billions of people in this world today that do not know one fact about the birth of Jesus? That's why we give to missions. That's why we invest in ministry. Because even in the community in which we live, there are people that have never heard the Christmas story. They know about Santa, and they know about the reindeer, and they know about all those other things, but they do not know the true story of Christmas. It is simple yet profound. It is life-changing. It is straightforward. All the Jews of that day would have known about the coming birth of a Messiah, that he would be of the line of David, that he would reign in a new kingdom, and that he would be born in Bethlehem. In fact, in the book of Micah, that birth is predicted. For in Micah 5, it says, But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. I mean, this is a small town, a few hundred people. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, 
He will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth, this one will be our peace. Have you ever thought about this? This was hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, and yet the birth of the Deliverer, the Messiah, the one chosen by God, was predicted, not only predicted, but it was predicted that he would be born in Bethlehem by somebody who would have been dead 400 years when Jesus was born. So it's another evidence that when God speaks, he's very accurate in what he says. Now, when you think about the virgin birth, you need to think about this. There was a due date and a place planned at a particular and precise time before time ever existed. In eternity past, when there was no clock before God created the heavens and the earth, he knew in his foreknowledge and in his sovereignty that there would be a day when man would sin and man would need a redeemer. And in that time before time, God said, there's a due date on my eternal calendar. And Jesus came at the precise time that God had ordained for him to come. Now, Luke is so familiar, and he knows that his audience is so familiar with this text that he doesn't even bother referring to Micah or quoting this text. But this prophecy is a reminder to us of the providential fulfillment of God to meet the needs of sinful man. Jesus was born in a place at a time. He lived for a certain amount of time, and he died, and then he rose again. Now, with the media the way it is, everybody knows about the birth of royalty. And we even know about the birth of people we don't care about, like Tom Cruise's kids. I mean, really? Does that really need to be on the cover of People magazine? I mean, do we care? But we know everything. Is Kate pregnant? The future king or queen of England. Is Kate expecting? And the sad thing is there are millions of people obsessed with that. They're not even going to be alive when this kid reigns because the great-grandmother is going to live forever. (laughs) I mean, Charles has even figured out, ain't going to be me. (laughs) I'll be dead before that happens. But, I mean, they get cameras and they get the media and they get tabloids and people follow them around and what's it going to be and is she showing and all this kind of stuff nobody did that at the birth of Jesus there was no media there in fact God had to dispatch a choir just to draw attention to it there was no hype there was no pomp in fact secular historians have ignored this but Luke gives us insight into this birth and if you look at it Luke has obviously been hanging around with Paul because as he writes this, he's been hanging around with the apostle Paul who has been speaking about this Christ who came. And you can kind of see as, he's, as he writes this story some, 
reflections of the book of Romans and the book of Galatians because probably Luke wrote this after Paul had written Romans and Galatians. Let me just give you some references. Romans chapter 1 verses 1 and 3, the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, God sending his son in the likeness a sinful flesh. And then in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now here's a man who has done detailed research and investigation. He's a medical doctor. He knows how to examine. He knows how to probe. He knows how to study. He's a bright light in the room. And so like any doctor seeking to diagnose what has happened, he goes into an evaluation of this birth of Christ. Very likely, Luke interviewed the disciples that were still alive, those that he could find. He would have interviewed the half-brothers of Jesus. He would have interviewed Mary and Martha of Bethany. He would have probably interviewed some of the 70 disciples He would have met some of the 500 who saw Jesus who was resurrected. He would have talked to people who had been around at the time of the birth of Jesus, maybe even some children of some of those shepherds who showed up that night. He would have done his homework. Probably he would have talked to Mary herself because supposing that Mary was in her teens when she had Jesus. She would have only been in her early 60s to mid-60s when Luke began to investigate this account of the birth of Christ. And in fact, it may be a hint to that if you look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 19. Luke chapter 2 and verse 19. There's a little bit of a subtle hint. Luke not being the kind of person that would say, hey, You know, I had a personal conversation with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Luke 2, 19, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She pondered them, but apparently revealed some of the facts to Luke as he began to put together this detailed account of the birth of Christ. And so, Here's a doctor who is examining a virgin birth, which as a doctor he knows is impossible. And so he's going to look at every angle of this story to see if actually Jesus was virgin born. And so back up to chapter 1 and verse 1, and I want you to see why I'm setting this stage of how much detail he's gone into. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So you've got disciples and apostles mentioned there. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. In other words, Luke is saying, I didn't just want to study the life of Jesus when his ministry began. I wanted to know how the beginning began. 
So he's studied it from the beginning to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now in chapter 2, we pick up the world conditions at the time of Christ's birth. Chapter 2 in verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Cornelius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, when you read all of Luke chapter 2, you find a supernatural tone to this chapter. There are angels, there's a heavenly announcement, there's the activity of God. And not one time in this chapter do you see Jesus called the son of Joseph. He's called the son of David, the son of the Most High, the King, the Son of God, but he's not called the son of Joseph. In fact, in Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, she never even refers to Joseph. Why? Because Joseph didn't have anything to do with this. This was all of God. This was God hovering over this woman and a virgin conceiving a child, which was a fulfillment of prophecy. And he says, in those days, in the days in which that happened, things were on the move. The Jews were under the bondage of Roman rule. The Jews not only hated the Gentiles in particular, but they hated Romans even more precisely because the Romans were holding them under their thumb. They were, in effect, in a quiet slavery. They had to do whatever the Romans told them to do. They had some freedoms. They had some ability to practice their religion. But at the same time, they were in bondage. And every time they saw a Jewish soldier, they saw a shield. They saw an image on that shield of Rome and of power and of Caesar, which reminded them, you're not in control of your life. And in that environment, Caesar Augustus issues a decree. Now, he was not born Caesar Augustus. He was actually uh, Gaius Octavius. He was born in 63 B.C., the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. What made Caesar Augustus great was that he ended all the civil wars in the Roman Empire. He extended Rome's boundaries and brought about Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. Because Rome was at peace and there was no civil war, he began a massive undertaking with slaves and with the military of building a road system that would connect every nation and every strategic city in all the known world. He built the first interstate system. It was with rock and then it was paved and so there was smooth travel. You could get anywhere, anytime. And so when you see the phrase in the scripture, in the fullness of time, 
The fullness of time not only refers to the birth of Jesus, but it refers to the fact that Rome paid for the pavement that Paul would walk on to take the gospel to the Gentiles. The whole travel system was updated from 63 B.C. up until the time of Christ in the early church so that the gospel could be carried and not one person that ever named a road after themselves ever thought it was for the gospel. But that's exactly what it was for. He paved the roads. He changed his name to Augustus, which means the majestic one, the highly honored one. There's a guy that doesn't have an ego problem. Three years before he came into rule, he granted a form of religion as long as it maintained the peace. What we remember him most for is this decree that he issued. When I got up and got dressed this morning, I didn't think about this initially, but I put on these cufflinks. These cufflinks have the emblem of Caesar on them. They are coins from the first century that were found in Israel and made into cufflinks. They're in remarkable condition. On this one, you can actually see the soldier and the shield and the wings of power. You can see the images of Rome on these things. Nobody made coins for Jesus. The coin that is in my ring today is from Masada, where poor Jews rebelling against the Romans held out, outnumbered, outgunned, outmanned in every way, held out to try to fight for their freedom. Even rebels had a coin to fight Caesar. But there are no coins with the image of the manger on it because his birth was insignificant to the secular world. He issues this decree, and the decree just means a government mandate. Lord knows we get enough of them today. And they did it for two reasons. They took the census for two reasons. One is to determine the young men that were eligible for military service. Now, a Jew could not serve in the military. Today in Israel, an Arab can live in Israel and actually can be an Israeli citizen, but they cannot serve in the military because of military secrets. They don't trust them. So you would have a census to try to find out who could serve in the Roman army. The second reason you would have it, guess what? Pay taxes. This was an IRS edict. They got an envelope at their door, and Joseph opened up the envelope and said, the IRS would like to have a meeting with you in Bethlehem. Now, as far as Caesar Augustus was concerned, this was just about army and power and politics and money. But that's not what God had in mind. Let me tell you why this is so significant and why the details of this are so important. For Caesar Augustus to issue an edict, a decree, a mandate that everyone go to the town of their birth and register there in the town of their birth, for him to do that and for that word to spread across the entire Roman Empire and then to allow time for people to be in the town they're supposed to be in at the time when the census is going to be taken would take two to four years. That means that Joseph and Mary didn't even like each other at that point. 
They were not engaged. They weren't dating. There was nothing going on at that point. And it was all ordained and orchestrated by God so that in the time the dominoes just began to fall, the decree is issued, the word is sent out. It finally makes it to Judea. Joseph realizes what he has to do. They make this journey and they make this move and people are moving all over the empire. Talk about a travel economy. They're moving all over the Roman Empire to go to the city of their birth where their family came from and register themselves because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now the national conditions were that the people were in bondage. But I want to kind of walk through, because if you've not been there and if you've not studied, by the way, there's a reason for maps in the back of your Bible. Uh, those cities and towns are important. But I want you to listen to the towns that Mary and Joseph would have passed through, because you just don't wander through the wilderness and you just don't walk around. you got to go somewhere where you can stay, get food, get water. These are the towns that they would have gone through on their journey to get to Bethlehem. Their first stop would have been Shiloh, where Hannah asked the Lord for a child. Now imagine the significance of that moment. They may have never visited Shiloh before, but now they're in a place where a woman had asked the Lord for a child, and she is about to bring forth God's child. They go to Gilgal, and that's where Hannah's son Samuel sat as a judge of Israel, they go from there to Bethel, where all the memories of the patriarchs are around Bethel with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, where Jeremiah pictured Rachel weeping for her children. They go to Gibeon, where Solomon worshipped. Mizpah, where Samuel raised the Ebenezer. Jerusalem, the city of David, and then to Bethlehem, the home of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth and Boaz is the story of a kinsman redeemer. Every place they went was tied to something about the character of God and God's revelation of his people. Every place they went was tied to history or to prophecy. And all they were doing by an outsider's evaluation was just making a trip to go register for the census. But when they got to Bethlehem, not only the home of Ruth and Boaz, but the place where Rachel was buried, the only piece of ground that Abraham ever owned and where King David was born. Luke doesn't even mention those. He knows that the people of the time would have been familiar with those stories and with those cities. And they came to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because David was the son of Jesse, a man of Bethlehem. Now, I want you to just listen as I read Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. This is about Joseph. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Can I tell you what this trip is? This trip is ordered by Rome, but it is ordained by God. You see, Caesar thought he was in control. God's just up there laughing in heaven. <laughs> I'm in control. It's ordered by man, but it is ordained by God because Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. 
Now, how do you get a man with a pregnant woman who is about to conceive to Bethlehem? The only way you can do it is if he's under orders to do it. And so orders and ordination put Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem at the right time. And here are the personal conditions. Wilbur Smith said, the supernaturalism of Christianity rests distinctly and solidly upon the supernaturalism of its founder, Jesus Christ. Verse 6, so it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. While they were there. That sounds like a matter-of-fact statement, except while they were there, the fullness of time came. And a baby was born, not just any baby, but the Son of God, God in flesh. All God, all man. But isn't it interesting, the phrase that we know as well as any, any phrase, there was no room for him in the end. No room. Talk about religious people who were self-centered. These are all Jewish people. They worship Jehovah. They offer sacrifice. They bring first fruits offerings. They tithe. And they are familiar with the scriptures. They are not ignorant of the word of God. And here's a pregnant woman in Bethlehem. They may not know that this is the woman carrying the son of God. But what they do know is they don't care enough to give up their bed for somebody else. This is a self-centered world. Guess what? Nothing has changed. You and I will probably spend more on gifts for each other than we give to missions this year. Nothing's changed. Jesus is still looking for ways to get into people's lives. We will be more concerned about what's on sale at Walmart and Target and on the Internet than we are about what we invest and give to missions. Nothing's changed. There's no room for Jesus in the end of our hearts. Because although we call ourselves Christians, we really worship what we put under our trees. We don't worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We worship the wrapping and the tinsel and the bows and the lights. We don't really worship Him because our priorities and our checkbooks say there's no room for Jesus in the end of our hearts. Nobody to say, you take my bed. Nobody to say, you take my room. No one to say, how can I help you? And listen, if that had happened, he would have noted it because he wrote down in precise detail what happened. The only way he could summarize what happened is that nothing happened. Nobody had any room for him. And so they went to a shelter. Basically, this area where they went would, could probably be described as like a barn it would have had two levels. There would have been a lower level where the animals would have grazed, and there would have been an upper level. And for people that had no money to stay in a hotel or an inn, or for people that didn't have any room, it would be like going to a campground with just a small thatch roof over the top. And so here's God's son inside the womb of Mary, sleeping with donkeys and cattle. Because religious people didn't care about a pregnant woman. Have things really changed that much? Religious people so caught up in themselves and 
so caught up in their need to be in Bethlehem to pay their taxes, forgot. I need to be kind. I need to be gracious. I need to be loving. I, I, I need to have the, the example of the life of God inside of me. But left to themselves, the religious people of that day were no different than the Romans who could have cared less if she had a room to sleep in. These were Jews, God's people, that did not care about this woman who was obviously about to give birth. And in that setting, God showed up. And she brought forth her firstborn son. No other details. No doctor, no midwife. Her mom wasn't there to help. Her dad wasn't outside to pass out cigars. Nobody. And suddenly, with one final push, this teenage girl, with a teenage man she was betrothed to, with one final push, God birthed out of her womb. And in a moment, Joseph took a baby still attached to an umbilical cord, a reminder that this was a supernatural baby, but also all human. And he lifted up less than 10 pounds of baby, less than 24 inches long, and looked at his Savior. That's who was born that day. And Joseph looked at a baby that could not speak, that could not talk, that could not respond in that moment because God came as a baby. And Joseph looked at him and knew, I hold my Savior in my hands. This is my God, my Redeemer. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets all looked for this moment. And here I am in a pigsty, in a hay barn, with God in my hands. Can you imagine the goosebumps on top of goosebumps that Joseph had at that time? Because guess what? It wasn't his son. It was God's son. He didn't hold that baby up when the shepherds came and said, That's my boy. Looks just like me, doesn't he? No. He held God in his hands. The creator, the breath of life, the sustainer, the pre-existent revelations of God that happened all the way through the Old Testament now come as a baby crying. She was, he, he was Mary's firstborn son. Jesus was not the only son that Mary had. We know that he had half-brothers. Now this is important, and don't miss it. He was not her monogenesis. That's the Greek word. That's the word that is used in John 3.16. Monogenesis, only begotten, unique, one of a kind, never to be repeated. That's what that word means. Sometimes you can pronounce it monogenes, but it's monogenesis, only begotten, one, never to be another one like it. In other words, God's got one son. There's some religions that think God's got a lot of prophets and they're all equal, but this is not it. There's one son. This is not her monogenesis. This is the father's monogenesis, his only begotten son. The word that is used here for this firstborn is prototokon, which means firstborn, first but not the last. 
Now, Jesus is the only, this is important for you, he is the only son born of a virgin. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She and Joseph had relationships and had children. They had children, normal children, the normal way. This son stands out from all the rest. He is different from the rest. He is unique among the rest. She had other children, but this is her only virgin-born son. He's also, he's the firstborn, and he's born into a family of the descendants of David. And remember the scripture says that there would be one who is a descendant of David who would sit on the throne in Jerusalem and reign and rule. And he was wrapped in cloth, or as King James says, swaddling cloth. And laid down in a trough where donkeys and sheep and calf slurp up their food. God's son. When's the last time you took a deep breath and said, that humble beginning requires my humility. You see, Jesus never saved us so we could strut about who we are. Jesus saved us to serve. He saved us so we would give, first of all, ourselves to him, our worship to him. Last week, I think was maybe one of the top five Sundays in my 22 years here. When David Nasser spoke here last week, I mean, it, God just so spoke to my heart and just reminded me of so many things about who we are and what we are to be about. And as I was studying this week, it reminded me that in Philippians, Paul says, have this attitude, this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus didn't show up in full armor, in full regalia, saying, I'm the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to think about the God we serve. The God we serve humbled himself and came out of a woman's womb and was helpless, had to be fed, had to be taken care of, had to be taught to walk. That woman heard his first words, the words coming out of the mouth of a boy, but out of the mouth of God. And he kept humbling himself. And he kept humbling himself. And he kept humbling himself. And when he could have stopped it and said, I'm not going to the cross. These people are not worth it. It's not worth this price. I'm not going to let anybody do this to me. I'm God and I have the right to say no. And he did. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. 
And so the Romans, who had ordered a census 33 years before, now take railroad spikes and drive them into his hands and into his feet. And they spit at him, and they mock him, and they beat him up until Isaiah says he was so beaten and so bruised that you couldn't even recognize he was a man. He was a bloody pup when they hung him on that cross. And he humbled himself to that. Can you imagine the God who created the iron in which those nails were made sat there and watched while they drove them into his hands? The ones who thought they had the authority to put him on a cross and declare his death, he had the power to overrule them at any moment. He humbled himself. But God has highly exalted him. And can I tell you, the only way you're ever going to see Jesus is if you humble yourself. Nobody struts to God. Nobody's doing God a favor by being saved. It is in our lostness and the reality that God humbled himself so that we would come humbly before him, repentant, confessing that we are sinners in need of a Savior. A humble birth could begin in you today. God could be birthed inside of you by repentance of sin and by confession that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ is not a way, He's the only way that you're going to get to heaven. You see, God humbled Himself and He expects us to humble ourselves if we're ever going to see Him and meet Him and know him. Otherwise, he's just a cute little baby in the manger, and he's a piece of jewelry. But when we humble ourselves and come to him, here's what happens. We start making room in our inn for people that we wouldn't care about otherwise. We walk a little slower through the crowd. We give a little more money at a tip. We open the door. We invite people in. We love them. We care for them. They may not be like us, look like us, smell like us, dress like us, but all of a sudden the whole world is before us through the eyes of God who doesn't look through a peephole to see if he wants to let us in, but opened heaven and declared that we could come in. And if we allow that humble birth to affect us, it will affect our praying, it will affect our giving, it will affect our serving, it will cause us to go a second mile when in reality we just kind of want to have Christmas all to ourselves. I was reminded of this at Thanksgiving. My friend Tom Elliff and Jeannie, who is still bouncing back from two rounds with cancer, took minimum clothing and went with full suitcases to Ethiopia to minister to our missionaries there. They filled it up so they could cook a traditional meal for our missionaries, some of them who haven't been home in eight years who are around the greatest famine and depravity and hopelessness 
and disease you can possibly imagine. I talked to Tom's brother Bill a couple of weeks before that. He said, you know, Tom, this is the first Thanksgiving he's missed since we were kids. He's never missed Thanksgiving. He said, the family always gets together at Thanksgiving. And I just thought, Tom knows that his dad is probably dying, and this may be the last Thanksgiving with his dad. But he made room in the end of his heart for people in Ethiopia who will never be able to do a thing for him. Tom and I talked this week, this is what he said to me. He said, Michael, you and I are going to Ethiopia. He said, I want you to see one of the most lost places in the world. But he said, I also want you to see a place where literally the book of Acts is taking place. He said, I met a man who walked 700 miles because he found out there was another group of believers. Walked 700 miles just to have fellowship with other believers. I saw God do incredible things in the hottest place and the hardest place. Now listen to this statement. In the hardest place I've ever been with the softest hearts I've ever seen. You know what? Albany, Leesburg, Dawson, Sylvester, and everything in between have got people with hard facades, but really their hearts are breaking. Because they're not going to have a good year this year. And as long as the church stays in her little box, and we don't look with the eyes of Jesus, we won't make room in the end of our hearts for those people. And if we do that, if we miss it, then we will have missed the purpose of being here. Showing people the love of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You may be here today and you've never made room in your heart to trust Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And I'm going to invite you in just a moment. Our staff members are here at the end of the aisles. And we would love to talk to you about how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How you can know Him in your heart. Some of you just need to write where you are, reevaluate what you're doing this year. What you're spending your money on. What you're spending your time on. What's really important. What you're saying to your children about what's really important. What you're saying to your grandkids about what's really important. I remember a few years ago when we sponsored four children overseas. We still do. We sponsor them every month. We, I got, just got a, a card, a very poorly written card from a little girl that I sponsor overseas. And she's 12 years old now. I remember when I gave those cards to my daughters and I said, this is what I'm giving you for Christmas. And I remember both of them saying, it's one of the best Christmas gifts I ever had. Now guess what? That's five years ago. I'm still paying for that gift. I'm still investing in those children. I've never met any of the four of them. But I'm still investing in it. I'm still trying to do something to make a difference in their lives. I met a young man yesterday 
I was out running some errands yesterday and I met a young man and I was just going about my business and God just prompted me that I needed to do something. So I reached in my pocket and I got some money out and I handed it to him. He looked at me like, what in the world are you doing? I said, I just want you to have a Merry Christmas. Folks, listen. This community needs Christians who don't act pious. This community needs Christians who show Jesus. All out, show Jesus.